0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants, and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. You will remain in hiding here for two weeks while we run a battery of tests on you. Then, when we think you've fully recovered your strength, we'll discuss the plan.
1: I still can't believe this. What do you mean hiding? Who am I
2: hiding from? What does she mean hiding? Well, you uh, might as well know, Miles, that reviving you as we did was in strict opposition to government policy.
0: What we've done is highly illegal, Miles, and if we get caught, we'll be destroyed, along with you.
2: What do you mean destroyed? What do you mean destroyed? Your brain will be electronically simplified. My brain? It's my second favorite organ. Resistors to mind reprogramming will be exterminated for the good of the state.
1: What kind of government you guys got here? This is worse than California.
3: Good morning, London. It is Thursday, January 15, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just Right.
1: Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright.
3: And boy, do we have a loaded show for you today. Today on the show, rights versus privileges, the Pope, gays, and global warming. There's a combination you don't hear too often. Uh, of course, we're going to be talking about the Sid Ryan controversy, the Gaza controversy, and last but certainly not least, we'll be talking about ca- tax cuts versus stimulus, some interesting arguments I've been seeing made out in the media there 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to have a input to the show at all or have any comments to add to anything that we might be talking about today and of course you can always email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com and of course check out our website at uh, justrightmedia.org where you will find a complete archive of all of our past shows First off, uh, I thought I'd start off with, uh, you know, there were things building up over the Christmas holidays when we weren't on the air live. And uh, some things I ran across that I just had to make a comment on, a few brief points here. And I thought I'd start with this one. I couldn't, you know, help but be compelled to comment on the following letter I saw in the National Post just the day before Christmas. It was uh, December 24th. And it was a letter to the editor by a fellow named Phil Wilcox in Ottawa, and it said, rights are just privileges. That's what the heading said. And the reason this caught my eye is because he makes uh, an argument here that I hear many people make. And uh, there are some very fundamental flaws in it, although I think there's some kind of well-intentioned clarification attempted here. But I'll tell you what, here's how his letter goes. Quote, in his discussion of group rights and individual rights, A previous letter writer, Stephen Head, states that governments do not grant rights and makes the further claim that individual rights are inalienable. I believe he's off base on both points, writes this letter writer. The terminology inalienable rights is in common usage but does not accord with reality. And that's where I think this writer makes his first mistake, and I'll demonstrate that for you shortly. Inalienable means not able to be given or taken away. It is apparent that what people consider to be rights are taken away on a regular basis by various regimes and tyrants, so they cannot be considered inalienable. Why don't we refer to rights as what they really are, which is privileges? Freedom of speech and freedom of religion are privileges that result from a society, through its organizational strength, read government, declaring or granting itself such privileges. These privileges exist only so long as that society has both the will and the strength to defend them. So in a sense, government does grant privileges, and someone with a bigger stick can take them away at any time. I can think of only one thing that is an inalienable right the right to try to survive. No one can take that away from you. End quote. Now, you know that this writer's conclusion completely contradicts the rest of his letter seems to be lost on him, I think. And, uh, you know, small wonder, it's a perfect example of what in philosophy would be called an epistemological disaster in thinking. And it's rampantly typical among people everywhere, even among people who I think agree with the basic ideas of freedom and individual rights. I don't think it's about that. Now, of course the word rights can be immediately misleading if one treats a right as an object. That's a big mistake, like something that one owns or possesses. But when we refer to the term rights, implicit in that is not some aspect of ownership or possession, since, ironically, ownership is a derivative of the very rights we're trying to define, but to the knowledge that it is right to do or not do something, which refers to action. And the irony is that, as the letter writer himself concluded, survival is the determinant of what is the right action in the world of reality. So, after correctly defining the term inalienable, as something that cannot be given or taken away, the writer's greatest error is to suggest that that term does not accord with reality, arguing that these rights can be taken away by regimes and tyrants, so they cannot be inalienable. Now, I think here he's missed the point entirely. You do not lose your legitimate rights simply because a government, or another group, or another individual has violated your life, liberty, or property. Uh, You know, the fact that a government may not legally recognize individual inalienable rights does not make those rights less real. Injustice does not negate the concept of rights. In fact, we determine something to be unjust for the very reason that it violates individual rights. That's the standard by which we judge. And as many a liberty champion has remarked in the past, rights are not granted, they are exercised or taken. The bottom line is no one can take your life or your your right to life or your rights from you. They may deprive you or prohibit you from exercising your rights and can even injure you to the point of death, but they cannot possess your rights. And that's the point of inalienable. Uh, you know, when somebody kills somebody else, he doesn't get away with an extra life. It's not like he owns it and he stole it and ha-ha, I got your life now, now I'll live another 50 years or something like that. That's It It cannot be possessed by others. That's what the whole meaning of inalienable is. I could come and shoot 10 people, but I would not possess their lives. It they can't be transferred. I can re- deprive them of their lives, but it, that's that's the end of their life. And the same holds true for rights. So even though uh, someone might rob me or, st- say, steal my stereo out of my apartment or something like that, uh, that doesn't mean I still don't have a right to it. It just means somebody violated that right, and, in fact, I can, in a proper society, use that right as my justification to seek redress. And, of course, that's why we want governments and we want objective laws in society. And uh, there there you go. I mean, that just shows why the the concept is very real and applies to reality and is ironically based on the very... Uh, notion of of survival and self defense and all those kinds of things that the writer acknowledges. So um, a lot of people get very confused. They confuse legal with moral, legal with reality. It's just amazing how we place the law almost like a godlike thing above everything, as though any whim or law that's passed is justifiable. Which of course it's not. And of course, if you ever think about the other side of the coin, group rights. You know, how do they actually work? notice the letter writer never mentions that. You just follow it through for a minute and you'll realize there's no such thing as group rights. Eventually, as you go through the chain, you'll find that some single entity or some individual is ultimately the person who gets to exercise authority in any group. And that's the entity that gets to have all the rights while everyone else has no rights whatsoever. So the theory there never matches the practice and therefore is unreal. Enough on that. Here's another one caught caught, caught my eye. This was uh, also the, the same day, National Post, December 24th. Pope's speech, his latest homophobic attack, uh, writes Martin Newall in the National Post, December 24th. And uh, basically this is, uh, oh, yeah here, from the Vatican City. This is a news item, not an editorial. Quote, a suggestion by Pope Benedict sixteen that hom- homosexuality is as much of a threat to the survival of the human race as climate change sparked outrage among gay rights campaigners yesterday. Now, <laughs> that's that was all I almost had to read. I just thought that was kind of funny because then it gets into all the details of what they complain about. But unfortunately, all of the outrage expressed against the Pope was utterly misdirected. And I think Kind of self-defeating. Gustav Hoffer, co-director of a documentary on the life of a gay couple in Italy called Suddenly Last Winter, referred to homosexuality as not being a whim, but a suffering, which was an odd thing to say. Another gay outraged by the Pope, Mark Dowd, uh, campaign strategist of Operation Noah, the Christian environmental group, talked about how, quote, the ecology is complex, it has all sorts of weird interdependencies, and it is the same with human sexuality, end quote. And on and on, those kind of arguments. You know, it seems to me that the obvious response to the Pope's description of homosexuality being as threatening as climate change would have been to agree with it. Because climate change is no threat to anything. (laughs) Climate change is a political figment in the socialist fascist mind. I've I've talked about that endlessly here. And we've had all kinds of people on the show just demonstrating this, people who know about it. And in the context climate change is being presented to us through the political process, it's completely make-believe. It's all designed for a redistribution of wealth from those who created the wealth to those who did not create the wealth, which explains perhaps why the Pope supports climate change theology. But it doesn't explain why the gay community supports it, unless we're only hearing from the uh, the green socialist fascist gays. I don't know. But in which case, it's nice to see uh, socialists and fascists sort of being hoisted by their own petard, evidence again that these philosophies are self-destructive. They always get you know <laughs> caught by their own ideas. And if uh, you want to take the argument even further, if gays are a threat to the survival of the human race, I, I guess because they don't procreate, it was, wasn't really... Made clear, then isn't every single person who's not sexually active also a threat to the human race? Um, you know, masturbation would be a threat to the human race. Maybe they do think that. Wouldn't priests and nuns be a threat to the human race because they're not permitted to have sex or get married within the Catholic Church? I mean, if, if the threat is to pro- procreation, wouldn't that be the real one? So <laughs> you can get a general idea of where we could ultimately go with this. So I'll stop right here while I'm ahead. And now to the the big story of the week. And boy, was this thing, the controversy surrounding this. Since we did the show last week, if you'll, you'll know, if you heard the show last week, hasn't been posted online yet, but it will be later on within the next 24 hours if you missed it. But uh, on the show last week, we were talking a bit about Sid Ryan and the situation in Gaza. And of course, Sid got into a bit of trouble over, uh, again, another, uh, you know, Avoiding something to do with Israel again, we'll get into that in a minute, but this wasn't the first time, and last week you would have heard a clip, the clip we played with Michael Corin, Sid Ryan, and Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, who were on Korn's show a year and a half ago on the eve of the uh, Lebanon bombings by Israel. You'll be hearing some pretty hot clips from these, this bunch again shortly that just occurred this past week. But to start off, I was stunned at the at the headline here. I was going, wow, January 6, 2009, National Post editorial headline, Sid Ryan's bigotry. Um, you know, and they quote, As usual, when Israel fights back at terrorists, Canadian leftists are lining up behind the men in the masks and the suicide vests. But no one has dis- uh, distanced himself and his organization quite so much as Sid Ryan, president of the Ontario section of the Canadian Union of Public Employees, which is CUPE, of course. Mr. Ryan's Gaza plan? Boycott the victim. In a January 5th press release, he declared, We are ready to say Israeli academics should not be on our campuses unless they explicitly condemn the December 29th bombing of of the Islamic University in Gaza and the assault on Gaza in general. It is a logical next step. Never mind that Israel's campaign in Gaza has been humane by military standards. This is a National Post editorial I'm continuing to read here surgically killing hundreds of Hamas gunmen, just o- yet only a few dozen of their human shields, and never mind that the Islamic University is a suspected arms depot for Hamas. Where, we ask, were the QP boycotts against academics from Russia, China, Sri Lanka, or any of the many other nations whose battles against terrorists have resulted in a far greater civilian toll? Nowhere on this file, Mr. Ryan and his fellow QP leaders care about demonizing only one country, the Jewish state. There's a name for that kind of bigotry, isn't there? Remember to speak its name plainly the next time you meet a CUPE Ontario employee concludes that editorial. don't know that it's necessarily fair to pick on every CUPE member, but uh, I suppose we have to assume that a majority of them knew who and what they were voting for when they voted for Sid Ryan, especially since this kind of policy is not the first time they've done this. I'm going to take a break here for a second, and the clip I've got coming up next is from... uh, I I was telling you about this last week. Actually, this aired a week ago today, two hours after our last show, and I gave you a heads up on it on last week's broadcast. And that was Paul McKeever appearing on the Christine Williams show on CTS, which is um, On the Line Viewpoints. The name of the show airs every day at 2 p.m. And appearing with him here, you'll hear uh, Christine Williams, the host, Rahil Raza speaking as as a, she's there uh, identified as a journalist, and Paul McKeever uh, from the Freedom Party, of course, and they were talking about Sid Ryan on Gaza. And on the other side of this, you'll hear Sid Ryan himself talking with Michael Korn on a show uh, taped, uh, I think, the very next day, yes, on the 9th. And uh, with Sid Ryan, and the other voice you'll hear is Rick Bell from the Calgary Sun, and they talk about Hamas versus Israel. Uh, Some very interesting debate here. I think you'll pick up some points and some nuances of this that you may not have been aware of. So we'll be back in about five minutes.
0: I still want to touch on the subject matter about the Canadian Union of Public Employees. Everybody has an opinion, but this organization is calling for, in our country, a boycott of Israeli academics in Ontario universities. Your view on that one?
2: international uh, attempt at a holocaust. I, I, as far as I'm concerned, um, you know, it was, it was interesting. Sid Ryan likened the bombing of uh, a university in Palestine uh, to uh, the burning of books by the Nazis. You know, he, would, he should read the other part about what the Nazis did, which is where they banned all Jewish speakers from uh, universities all Jewish professors and this is exactly what Sid Ryan is calling upon he wants anybody who takes the Israeli side not to be able to speak in a Canadian university
0: well what he said explicitly is that if he, if, if any Israeli academic has not explicitly yes, yes. explicitly condemned this this retaliation that's going on in the Middle East they need to be banned yes. my question for a person like Sid Ryan is did he purport the same rule at 911 that all islamic professors should be banned if they didn't explicitly condemn 9-11 i believe that this is a knee-jerk reaction and he really has gone too far because academics culture and art should be totally beyond politicization you know i've always said and i feel that a rocket fired from palestine and a bomb thrown by israel should not land in our university's backyards so very simply this academics should have absolutely no part of this and i think that this was said in anger or uh, he's apologized since then but for not for this he's apologized not for the proposed ban but he's apologized for actually comparing the jews to the nazis
4: Um, I have had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails about Sid, because he's been a regular on the show for, for ten years, and, and to pretend this isn't happening will be ludicrous. You've heard what he's, he's said. I'm, I don't agree with him on much of what he's said, but he has the right to speak out. I'm not going to ban someone from the show because I disagree with them, but I want to hear other, other points of view. Um, Calgary Sun columnist Rick Bell in Calgary. Ah, you heard what was said there. Your opinion, please, sir. I, 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 I just can't. It's my first time on. And thank, uh, thank goodness uh, this story hasn't uh, had a lot of legs in Alberta. I don't think the Ontario QP is considered uh, uh, too worthy of comment most of the time out here. But that being said, I just find it funny that the same standard is not... I mean, I think the average person on the street wonders why the same standard is not applied to Hamas and their actions, period. Without getting into the intricacies of the Middle East conflict, I just wonder, Sid, why you do not have the same high standard and moral high ground when it comes to their actions? Why your union does not take the same position with the uh, on on their injustices as well as the so-called Israeli injustices? Well first off, Rick, we we, uh, and I have made it clear on a hundred occasions, I do not support the actions of Hamas in firing rockets uh, into... So are you going to boycott them too are you going to put some sort of uh, disciplinary action on them? Um, I just said that we have not, do not support uh, Hamas yeah. firing rockets into northern Israel. But the premise of your question so, seems to be, uh, a southern Israel. Um, the... The premise of your question appears to be that there is some kind of proportionality here between the state of Israel and, and uh, the, the Palestinian state, uh, no, I'm or saying at least you Gaza, where you you've got su- one with, Rick, on, one with, with 400 uh, uh, four, or 600 um, you know, uh, uh, warplanes and, and tanks and all kinds of rocket fire and others. Uh, unarmed civilians, basically, uh, at the exception of um, some militants who've got uh, limited amount of firepower. There's not, like, e- an equal balance between the two, and for one to be using the, t- the full and total might... I gave you the example of the, of, uh, Hamas the British a, Army in Belfast. Hamas is attacking mm-hmm. Israel. Say that so, again, Rick, Hamas is attacking Israel. Okay, let, let me ask well, you. The, the issue of proportionality is an important one here, and, it, and, it, and it's one of the bases of just war, acceptable war in Geneva Convention. Yeah. Some would argue there have now been just under 11,000 rockets fired in. Yeah. Now, if Israel was to uh, reply proportionately, it would fire indiscriminately 11,000 rockets. But no, That th- would but kill hundreds of no, thousands that's of not, people. That's not the answer. The, the Hamas the the haven't of, fired them th- hoping they weren't But that's hurt. not the principle of proportionality, Michael. You've got to take a look at as, as, uh, what is the damage that they're doing, um, albeit repugnant as it is. Um, what is the damage that it's actually causing? Um, in you know, it's In other words, the... the the viability of the state of Israel is not jeopardized by these crude rockets being fired in by Hamas. Not no. at all. It's uh, it is, it, actually. They're getting closer and closer no, it's to, to the nuclear plant you, you, in Damodan. They will, they will never... Ash, Ashdod and Ashkelon. By and by I, I worked in a nuclear plant, and this, uh, believe me, one of these little, little rockets... Firing, I bet. Uh, <laughs> one, one of these little rockets is not going to damage a nuclear oh. power plant.
3: <laughs> wow, can you believe that, eh? 11,000 rockets, and that's not enough reason for Sid Ryan to say that Israel should have a right to defend itself. Just unbelievable. And I guess that's how the National Post felt on January 7th, 09, when their next editorial on Sid said, Sid Ryan keeps digging, end quote. And it says here, quote, In Tuesday's National Post, we published an editorial criticizing QP Ontario and its leader Sid Ryan for their bigoted singling out of Israel for an attempted boycott. In the letter letter section of today's editions, Mr. Ryan attempts a rebuttal. His manner of argument only makes us more convinced that the QP Ontario leader, with his poisonous hatred of the Jewish state, is an embarrassment both to his union and to the labor movement at large. In his letter, Mr. Ryan defends himself by declaring that he is not the only one seeking to boycott Israel. Uh, U.N. Special Rapporteur Richard Falk, the President of the U.N. General Assembly, and a group of British academics, Mr. Ryan, notes, have all done likewise. Apparently, Mr. Ryan is too ignorant to understand that the authorities he cites only confirm our description of him. The U.N. General Assembly is a notorious printing press for shrill anti-Israeli resolutions, most of them pro forma propaganda proposed by Muslim nations and their rogue state allies. By the way, that's so true, that pro forma propaganda, you will hear that step by step, word by word, by every spokesman on that side here in London, Ontario, right down to Palestine itself. Mentioned that last week, just like they're following a script. But continues a national post, Mr. Falk, in particular, is an unhinged hysteric who believes Israel harbors a genocidal tendency, and that was just like dr l or Dr. Manir al Kasim, whom I quoted last week on the show, using this very word regarding Israel, and who compares says a national post israel's Jewish leaders to Nazis as for th- As for that core of left-wing British professors who can be depended on to slander Israel year after year, they've been denounced by academics in many countries, including both Canada and the UK itself, for their hateful one-sided take on the Middle East conflict. It's appalling to think that these are the people whom Sid Ryan looks to for moral direction. As we said yesterday, what a disgrace, writes the National Post. Meanwhile, here here in the London Free Press saw a headline, Ryan simply wrong to target Israel. January 12th, lawyer Edward Greenspan writes, quote, Sid Ryan, president of CUPE Ontario, said this recently, quote, Israeli academics should not be on on our campuses unless they explicitly condemn the university bombing and the assault on Gaza in general. With little knowledge of the facts behind Israel's attack on a university that was believed to be housing weapons, Ryan also said, Attacking an institution of learning is just beyond the pale. They deliberately target an institution of learning. That's what the Nazis did, quote. No, what the Nazis did, writes the Post, was murder six million Jews, in case Ryan forgot. What Israel did was attack Islamic University because it had become a Hamas rocket manufacturing base, among other non-civilian uses. This is what Hamas does and everybody, but Ryan knows it. While Ryan eventually apologized for the Nazi analogy, he made it clear he still stands by his other comments. Ryan's hypocrisy, anti-Semitism, and plain ignorance is well known. Instead, what I want to know is how do CUPE Ontario's members find it appropriate in the midst of the most significant economic crisis of the past 50 years to have their union dues spent on pursuing resolutions that call for the blacklisting of all Israelis who do not take some kind of loyalty oath written by Ryan. Does Hamas pay dues to CUPE Ontario? (laughs) This is Edward Greenspan, remember. Next month, CUPE's Ontario members will be given a chance to vote on whether to support Ryan's resolution to call for a ban of Israeli academics at Ontario universities. If I were a CUPE Ontario member, I would be outraged that my union would waste my money on such an offensive resolution. But then again, CUPE Ontario has done this before. In 2006, it passed a resolution calling for boycotts, divestments, and sanctions against Israel. In fact, that, that was the issue we dealt with last week, and the quotes you heard from Korn and uh, Sid Ryan himself. QP Ontario represents more than 200,000 members, most of whom I suspect agree that their union dues should not be spent on such measures. I call on them not to let Ryan do their thinking for them and to vote down this obscene resolution. Wow, strong words. Well, you know, I wonder how QP members feel about Ryan's latest irrational romp, his Cross Ontario Unbottle It Tour. Did you hear about that lately here in London? In conjunction with Canada's leading communist fascist, Maud Barlow in the Council of Canadians, who are I don't know th- that they should be called that, I think they're really the UN representatives to Canada. Uh, you know, like being anti Semitic, the UN is also anti water in a bottle, okay, which makes no sense to anyone who doesn't understand that the common theme to to all of these folks is their anti-capitalism, anti-freedom, anti-individualism. They don't even care about, really, Labour or their union members, you know. It's kind of like Hamas. CUPE and other like-minded unions actually use their members as a shield to conduct their destructive political campaigns. That's what they're doing. You know, I remember back in uh, the mid-1980s, I I wrote something to the effect that, uh, and this is almost literal, uh, something like um, unions were really political lobby groups who happened to do a little collective bargaining on the side, And I think that's as true today as it was when I first wrote it. That's what I saw when I was looking at unions. They were always uh, getting into issues they shouldn't be getting into. In fact, on a previous show here, I was on with Sid Ryan, another clip we played where we were talking literally about that issue. Now, as to the bottled water debate itself, uh, let's face it, been there, done that. Check out our website at www.justrightmedia.org where you can learn everything you ever wanted to know about bottled water and water in general. We devoted entire shows to the subject, and while this doesn't mean we won't revisit the issue on future shows, who knows, maybe even next week, uh, today we want to keep our theme on the conflict in Gaza and local public opinion on the subject. Uh, You know, if nothing else, I suppose we could thank Sid Ryan for uh, bringing an international issue to the local scene and making it a hot one for people You know, increase the interest in the issue, and I think we need to be looking at international issues a little more. Now we're getting near the bottom of the hour, gonna go into that break that's coming up with another clip, uh, a couple of clips again, from the same two shows that we were talking about before. And here I think we're going to see a little bit more of a concentration on the that, that whole issue of equivalence, you know, like what's what's uh, too much response and, and what's too little. And boy, you wanna hear some interesting comments on that. That's what you'll be hearing next. And we'll be back after this break and set of ads in a few minutes.
0: I don't think we're here to take sides with Israel or Palestine. I think we're here to talk about a huge humanitarian crisis which has the Mm. makings of a much larger crisis. Let's not forget that if this doesn't stop now, I think it could escalate into a really huge worldwide global crisis. I'm going to ask this question to the two of of you here. (coughs) Did that crisis just begin? Because obviously when a war begins, it becomes it becomes a media frenzy let's face it but when Israel was receiving these rockets into its territory killing its children as well didn't the crisis in a sense begin there yes I know it's worse now because you've got a situation where Gaza is is cordoned off so you're not getting proper supplies in to help the wounded and I realize that puts it into a whole different category but all along here we're seeing a crisis happening where human lives were being lost continue to be lost that perhaps, well, that, that need not be so. Specifically in the case of Hamas, that initiated this by throwing its rockets into Israel, and now we're seeing
4: a, a reaction, reaction. A
0: reaction. Now you're saying it's disproportionate. Do you yes. believe it's disproportionate there,
2: um, Yes, John? they haven't bombed enough. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't bombed enough, you're that's saying? That's correct. I, I think they've been far too cautious. Um, the, the people who are being killed, um, by Hamas, by, being lo- by Hamas shooting from their location, and of course, Hamas expects fully to be bombed in, in return and to have those people be killed. Um, those people, I mean, the, the question becomes, I mean, back it up for a second. It, there is a humanitarian crisis, yes. but that's the effect of something, and it's the effect of a war. The war is a war between, on one hand, uh, the forces of collectivism, and on the other hand, the force of individualism, and it's the, those who do not want individualism, that are causing this. And they're continually trying to provoke worldwide outrage against mm-hmm. the forces of individualism, Israel. Um, when, a, when a police officer uh, is, is found, uh, finds himself uh, in, at the you know, barrel of a gun, some bad guy's got a barrel of a gun pointed at him, and there's a, sh- a human shield between the police officer and the bad guy, and there's just no way that the officer can survive without shooting through that shield. If the officer does that, if the officer does that to save his own life, The bullet came from the officer. Did kill that shield, but the murderer was the person who was using that person as a human shield. We cannot go about saying that it's even on both sides. The defender who who shoots back at Hamas and takes out some uh, civilians in the process is not at fault. Hamas is at fault. So it's it's one thing to say humanitarian crisis, but we cannot forget to condemn the side that is responsible for it. And I think. There is not enough uh, attacking of Hamas. I I think they need to be entirely annihilated, not dealt with.
0: Right now, we're continuing to discuss about CUPE and its role in trying to propose, while they have proposed it, a ban on all Israeli academics at Ontario universities. And the condition is unless they explicitly come out and openly condemn Israel's actions in the Middle East. And what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, it's outrageous. I mean, the the, the pretext for this is that that Israel bombed a university... uh, um, uh, in the Palestine, uh, Palestine area. This was a university, though. The context is, this is a university that used to be funded by the Communists that, you know, prior to the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall that um, has, a, about a year, year and a half ago, was found to have been uh, a storage depot for weaponry found by the Palestinians, not by the Israelis, but by the Palestinians uh, to have been a, a storage place for weaponry. So, th- and, and it is the central point for not only... Uh, uh, graduate, postgraduate degrees, in a lot of the kind of pro-Hamas uh, stuff that we're that we're seeing uh, propagated around the world, the organizations that are supporting these bans on Israel are usually they usually have nothing to do with Palestine. They usually are leftist, pro-union, collectivist groups who have decided that they can capitalize on racist or other tribalist tensions around the world, and because they can't you know, teach everybody what Karl Marx had to say about the proletariat and et cetera, they say, well, what's the next best thing we can do? Find any collective that's held together by their hatred of someone else, by their race, by their religion, and we'll put them together in the big brotherhood of collectivists. Sid Ryan and his CUPE members ought not to be doing anything outside the borders of Ontario. They're there to represent workers, not to be taking on... International capitalism, which is exactly what he's trying to do, by by um, uh, like Shin Fain, like these other various groups around the world that are are taking the Gaza side, trying to badmouth Israel when they know that Israel is the one location in the whole Middle East that is pro-Western, pro-individual rights, life, liberty, property. It's a socialist state. It's a mixed economy. It's not it's not my ideal state, but it's a far cry away from the. Mm-hmm. Uh, the collectivist daydream that that uh, Sid Ryan would like to have us all living under where nobody's mind matters, no one's opinion matters, the government doles out, takes from, ev- takes from the productive, gives out to each according to their political whims, um, where nobody's mind or opinion matters. That's absolutely disgraceful. And to capitalize upon this war um, by bringing it home, and, by the way, of course, is an election in which he's going to be running again, I presume, for yes. president. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I can't help but believe that this group, and it's a, as I understand, a subgroup of CUPE, mm-hmm. it's only a thousand members or so, mm-hmm. but they have consistently uh, ele- elected him. They did the same thing in 2006 when he proposed, or someone in his uh, uh, group proposed, a boycott on Israel, uh, even though... Israel hardly sends any goods to Canada in the first place. It was largely symbolic. It's anti-Israeli, uh, as far as I'm concerned. If we are supporting Sid Ryan, we're supporting Hamas. We're supporting the exact same anti-individual, anti-individualistic, uh, frankly anti-Jewish sentiments. I think it's disgraceful, and and for anybody to be voting this guy in again, I, you know, they're as guilty as anybody sitting in, in Palestine right now.
3: Well, there you have it. <laughs> Paul, Paul was was he holding back on his, his opinions or anything there? Boy, uh, welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW ninety four point nine FM, and we'll be with you from now to noon. I'm Bob Metz, and you can call in 519-661-3600 if you disagree with anything you've heard so far. And you know, just to almost emphasize all the points made, you know, I spent a depressing several hours last weekend watching the various news coverages of uh, from Gaza, from CNN to BBC to CBC. Uh, I always, you know, I realize I'm generally watching what many would call biased reporting, but that's the case with all network news about, you know, all agencies all the time about every issue. It's not as though you can really single them out and say that on this issue they're being particular particularly biased since their bias is there uh, consistently on every issue. Now, all three of the networks I get... I just have basic cable. I don't get Fox News, unfortunately. I hear a lot of people, lefties, complain about it, so I wouldn't mind getting that. But, uh, you know, they're all very left-wing in their journalistic viewpoints. Yet, despite that, you know, many truths leak through the bias, particularly when uh, those purportedly on the side of the Palestinians start making their case. And I have to tell you, I listened carefully. I listened to the moderates. You know, I heard And i got to say, I heard not a single justifiable statements in their arguments for the continuous rocket attacks on Israel. There's nothing they can say to defend that, and yet they're busy, busy doing it. It's just stunning. Um, (laughs) Like, you know, rocket attack uh, because of other conditions and stuff. Certainly there's many injustices. Don't even want to go there, but that's you just don't do that. You can't start like that and expect to have any kind of dialogue. And, you know, this was what from the type of things that CNN was calling their moderate representatives on the Palestinian position. Well, coming back home now here, I saw in the free press, just looked at it yesterday, in fact, because I hadn't caught it the day before. I don't know if many of you caught this. Did you see the open letter to the prime minister? And uh, who else was it directed to? Uh, Someone else, oh, foreign foreign affairs minister. Um, And it said... Uh, here is a headline, Israeli attacks described as war war crimes and humanitarian crisis, an open letter to Stephen Harper, whose picture appeared with the appeal and to Foreign Affairs Minister Lawrence Cannon. The signatories to the letter are as follows, and I thought this was an interesting thing just to note in and of itself. You've got... Uh, Several of them here, and this was in the paper two days ago. David Jansen, chairperson of uh, Canadian Friends of Sabil, London chapter. David Heap, moderator, People for Peace. Beth Guthrie, coordinator, London War Resisters Support Group. Mazden Shahato, president, Canadian Palestinian Association. Umer Jamil, chairperson, Palestinian Student Association. Nazi Maru, vice president, Al Mahdi Al Muntathar Union. I know I'm not probably pronouncing a lot of them correctly. Ahmad Hayek, President of Canadian Arab Society, London. Zan Salimi, Chairperson, Association of London Muslims. David Hassan, Chairperson, London Muslim Mosque. Hassan Mustafa, President, Islamic Centre of Southwestern Ontario. Salkan Berzik, President, Bosnian-Canadian Islamic Centre. Ali Pardon, Chairperson, Alul Bayt Islamic Centre. And last, but certainly not least... Corey Morningstar, President, Council of Canadians, London Chapter, and of course that's the ban drive-throughs, ban water bottle sales, along with Sid Ryan, Corey Morningstar. Now here's what they had to say: Quote, "We are writing you, and this is when they say you, they're referring to, of course, the, the Prime Minister. We are writing you to protest your government's silence in the face of the ongoing Israeli assault on Gaza." Now, uh, end quote there for a second, because already at this point I'm scratching my head because our government has not been silent on this issue, arguing quite consistently that Israel has a right to defend itself. And Canada's position being openly objected to, by the way, by the comments of Dr. Munir El-Kassim that we read on the show last week. And he acknowledged that Canada does have a position on this, but he disagrees with it. But here's uh, the most pertinent parts. Quote, Many of the Israeli military attacks have targeted civilian homes and institutions, such as mosques, schools, universities, police stations, and prisons. Under international and Canadian law, these attacks and the resulting civilian casualties constitute war crimes. This is a serious humanitarian crisis. In international and Canadian law, this amounts to the collective punishment of the civilian population itself, a grave violation. End quote. The writers then cite the UN's Professor Richard Falk, the very person the National Post referred to, quote, as an unhinged hysteric who believes Israel harbors genocidal tendencies and who compares Israel's Jewish leaders to Nazis, end quote, uh, just like Sid Ryan. And so, you know, there is another reason that, who are they picking to support their position? And then after using this wonderful icon of their cause to promote it, the writers then conclude, quote, Siding with the aggressor and condemning the victims only lengthens the time that it will take to finally achieve a genuine and durable peace. Yours in peace, end quote, and then all the signatories. <laughs> yeah, right, peace, man. Uh, sounds more like a declaration of war to me, doesn't it? I how you read that. Well, scary stuff, any way you look at it. But that's all I've got to say on that issue today, and we want to change subjects now, and we'll be taking a quick break here for a smile, and we'll come back talking about taxes versus stimulation in the economy. We'll be back right after this quick break.
1: I'm teasing my Islamic brothers. Islam is actually a beautiful religion, but it gets a bad rap, I think, because of the terrorists that blow people up. But everybody's got a reason for doing what they do. I read about this, you know what I found out? If you die as a martyr in Islamic law, Allah will give you 70 virgins. (laughs) You see where I'm going here? These guys aren't fanatics, they're horny adolescents. And they're extra horny in the Middle East because they can't look at the women's bodies. The women wrap themselves up so all these guys can see, eyes and maybe a little nose cleavage. So these guys are ready to pop. They're standing on street corners. Oh, look at the eyeballs on that one. Oh, that one's showing a little bit of eyebrow. What a dirty little slut she is, huh? They're just horny, like you and me. If we could send some hookers over to the Middle East to have sex with these guys, they'd all wake up the next morning and go, you know, the Jews really aren't so bad. I mean, Maximovitch, you're alive.
0: No, I'm dead.
4: Look
1: at this hole. Oh,
4: does it hurt? I feel nothing.
1: Man, you don't look so bad for a guy who's dead. Actually, better than when you're alive. I think it agrees with you.
4: Yes, so do me a favor.
1: Sure, anything.
4: This engagement ring.
1: Uh-huh.
4: Uh, I was going to give it to my girlfriend as a surprise.
1: Oh, you want me to give it to her?
4: No. What's the point? I'll take it back to the jewelers in Smolensk. Right. Petroshnik, Vladimir Petroshnik. Okay. Tell him I'm dead and get the deposit
1: back. Oh, okay, sure. What'd you
4: give him for this? 1,600 rubles. For this? You gave him 1,600 rubles. Oh, look, there's this diamond here. There's two little baguettes there.
1: insane. I could have gotten you this ring for 1,200.
4: Not this. same ring. Never that ring. The exact same ring. Uh, Never. Listen, anyway, listen. Take the deposit go to Kiev right give right. it to a woman named Natasha Petrovna right okay get a receipt make sure you get a receipt what do you need a receipt you're dead tax
3: purposes
4: oh good thinking
3: there you go can't even escape uh, taxes and death and isn't that true and that's what brought my attention to this issue was uh, an article by Joe Belanger in the London Free Press on January 10th in the heading read Jim Think outside the tax cut box. Of course, referring to Federal Finance Minister Jim Flaherty, who writes Joe Belanger, quote, is getting no shortage of advice on measures to stimulate the slumping economy. The only question is whether Flaherty's actually listening or whether he'll show his true colours and use the recession as a smokescreen to try and implement tax cuts for his corporate cronies and the rich. I can't believe people still talk like this, but hey... And I say try because any such move would surely lead to a federal election as the opposition parties would be unable to resist voting down the budget being presented January 27th. You see, Flaherty is a one-trick pony, writes Belanger. He believes tax cuts are all that's needed for what ails you. Stubbed your toe? Why, here's a tax cut. Go out and buy a bandage. Cancer? Here's a tax cut and you can use the savings to get a treatment at a privately owned U.S. hospital. Decapitation? No problem. Here's a cut to buy that swanky, gilded coffin. Flaherty appears incapable of setting aside ideology when true leadership, courage, and decisive, effective, and creative action is required. The only economic vision Flaherty has ever embraced is best described as laissez-faire. If it's good for a business, well, it's good for everyone. Less government, therefore fewer taxes, and let the strong survive. Never mind that tax cuts in the hands of the poor, low, and perhaps middle income are plowed right back into the economy, into the hands of business people, providing an immediate stimulus, end quote. Belanger then goes on to complain that virtually all forms of government stimulation, unemployment benefits, infrastructure spending, job retraining, will all end up in the hands of business people at some point. I don't know why he complains about that, as if there's no exchange of goods or services going on. I don't get it. But he concludes, quote, "I am not an economist and have never been accused of being terribly bright, but it doesn't take a lot of brain power to see the folly of focusing solely on tax cuts, especially cuts across the board, where the bulk of the money will go into bank accounts or to fund trips to Palm Beach. Then again, it doesn't take a lot of brain power to blindly embrace ideology. end quote <laughs> Oh wow, you know? I'm always amused by writers who after making a completely mindless argument excuse themselves by admitting that they're not terribly bright as if that's an acceptable source of expertise and authority on a given subject. Uh, if there's anything ideologically blind, it's this kind of reasoning. It is the blind embrace, you know, of, of an ideology opposed to laissez-faire. And I can't get over how many, how many people like him think that laissez-faire is something that business is endorsed. They do not. I've talked about it over and over again. Business is anti-laissez-faire. So, you know, if he doesn't like business, you're picking on the wrong thing here. Uh, laissez-faire, let's get this straight is not the consequence of any sort of faith system or blind ideology or business agenda, okay? Uh, Like capitalism, laissez-faire is simply the consequence of a few things. One, of acknowledging reality. Two, of applying reason. Three, of acting in one's rational self-interest. And four, consistently applying the principle of consent to all human relationships, whether they be political, economic, personal, whatever. Reality, reason, self-consent—that equals laissez-faire capitalism. It's not like you can start it the other way around and work backwards. It's just the consequence of living in a rational society. So that when you, you know, all protests against laissez-faire are irrational screams against the principle of consent, and therefore they're immoral from the outset. You know, Rand used to always say uh, morality ends where a gun begins. You know, and she was one of laissez-faire's greatest defenders, and that's what she meant. She says, look, the minute you stop being laissez-faire or freedom, you're using force. You're going out there with a gun to do the things you want to do, and you're basically saying that your money belongs to me and that my my goals are more important than yours, even though your money was earned by you. I still have a right to it. Boy, our society is full of people like that, and it explains entirely why we're heading down the tubes economically. But with respect to tax cuts, the irony is that tax cuts are among the few meaningful courses of action that governments have at their disposal. They're the the biggest obstacles we have to prosperity, for heaven's sakes. And as the single greatest cost-of-living burden to all Canadians, exceeding all the basic necessities of life put together. Government is both the cause of our current economic crisis and the greatest obstacle to a quick recovery. It, this is just factual, and I've, I've been you know showing this and demonstrating it on this show through historical evidence and, and reasoned evidence over the years. We have to learn from history somewhere. When will we? But, you know, Belanger's argument loses on every account, from every side of the argument, uh, except, of course, for his self-appointed authority in judging Flaherty's tax cuts and uh... you know he says he's not very bright and he's no economist so why is he writing economic articles about which he claims no knowledge or even understanding of I just don't understand you know as i've always said it's perfectly okay to be ignorant or stupid or not know about any particular subject but don't use that as your excuse for telling the rest of us what we should do that's where you cross the line i don't mind that people don't know about things and don't know about politics or don't know about government But they shouldn't be out there voting on things that they don't know about, and that's when it gets scary. Especially when they tell you not what you should do with your money, but what you must do with your money, you know. Now, here's another article, National Post, by Pierre Lemieux. This appeared on the 19th of uh, December. And it kind of takes an opposite point of view. And I kind of agree with half of this article and have a few difficulties with the other half. But it was very interesting. He talks about the brave new world of stimulus, which, of course, is what we're going to be hearing a lot of talk about now, especially when uh, Obama gets uh, inaugurated and Parliament in Canada resumes later at the end of the month. And here's what he has to say. Quote, "'Aggregate demand drives the economy. If it falters, government stimulus is necessary. Welcome to the economics of the brave new world.'" Aldous Huxley's imaginary world is built around slogans like, "'Ending is better than mending. The more stitches, the less riches.'" Don't repair your old clothes, buy new ones. Boost consumption, otherwise the wheels stop turning. The more more we consume, the richer we are. It is, of course, writes Lemieux, the other way around. The richer we are, the more we can consume. Consumption cannot create opportunities and wealth out of nothing. Now, there is a sentence that I agree with 100%. And I wish more people would understand that. Given money to, you know, you hear people... uh, petitioning Flaherty, don't give it to the business at the top, give it to us at the bottom, because we're consumers and we'll go out there and consume goods. Well, what they'll end up doing is bringing down the standard of living of everyone. Uh, But to carry on here with Lemieux's article, it could, or if it could, consumers in poor countries would learn the recipe and soon become as rich as Croesus, that's for sure. Like politicians, novelists often have it wrong when they venture into economics. Huxley thought it was capitalism that would lead us into the brave new world. Society's god was named Ford, interestingly enough. The genial novelist was as mistaken about capitalism as though those who now believe that nationalizing car manufacturers is the way to economic freedom. From his grave, Huxley must notice a little dissonance. Chrysler and GM cannot make consumers purchase the cars that they don't want. With his consumption voodoo, Huxley was a Keynesian long before Keynes. The former's Brave New World predates the latter's General Theory of Employment Interest and Money by 3 years, with the two books being published in 1933 and 36 respectively. It suggests that Keynes' theory was already a popular superstition. In the General Theory Keynes does admit that many such theories had emerged since World War, uh, since the First World War rather, including Major Douglas's Social Credit which he mentions in passing but dismisses. The idea that the more you spend, the more the wheels of the economy turn and money circulates is an old but flawed idea. Whatever scientific and modern colored varnish has been put on it, it relies on funny mechanical metaphors and plumbing analogies. The state, quote, primes the pump and, quote, injects money into the, quote, circular flow of income as macroeconomics textbooks have been rumbling about for seven decades. End quote. Now, up to this point, midpoint in his essay, I agree with almost everything he says, but from here on in, Lemieux, who's an economist, I think undermines a bit of the point he's just finished making, but maybe I'm missing his intended context. Uh, but here's what I, how I see it. And here's what he says, uh, quote, If an analogy were needed, the electronic analogy would be much more appropriate and consistent with moder- modern economics for an efficient economy is based on information and coordination. Now, I basically disagree with that statement because I think that might apply to an efficient business, but not to an economy. I think efficient economies are based on uh, on freedom. And in an in economy, economic information is displayed as prices. And if they're un, not interfered with, then you're getting the information you need. But maybe that's a step he just wants to skip. But he goes, he goes on, he says, One argument, perhaps the most serious for government stimulus, is as follows. And he says, think in real terms. If real goods and services are to be consumed, real goods and services must be produced. If people produce fewer of them because they think they won't be able to exchange their output with others who are producing less, you get a contagious recession. Confidence can be restored by a big trusted spender, a.k.a. the state. Since it is government policy that started the mess, there are good reasons not to trust the state's magic wand. My point is that, with the big trusted spender comes the big trusted regular regulator, and here he refers to the car Czar the drug Czar the energy Czar the intelligence Czar you know, I never realized how many how many times Americans use the word "sar" in their in the appointment of many of their officials, and i'm starting to wonder which way they're going that's not the right word to use at all in America, but he concludes quote, only the uh, top Czar the Czar is missing, or perhaps it is not. If the state is responsible for everything, it must control everything, which is exactly Huxley's brave new world. Everybody is taken care of, and some permission is required for everything. There, the visionary Huxley got it right. As we see again in the second New Deal, in less than a hundred years, stimulus certainly makes some wheels turn, but they are the wheels of the state. Oh, brave new world, he concludes. Now, of course, uh, last week, if you were tuned in, we we talked about an economist, Faustino Balve, who was uh, the Spanish economist, eventually ended up in Mexico, gave a bit of history of him and what he had written about the economy. But he had some things to say on unemployment, too. And he talked about how, uh, you know, up till between 1848 and 1914, unemployment as a mass phenomenon was almost unknown. They just never heard of it, eh? And, um, basically explains how with the advent of World War I, a great scarcity of labor occurred since a uh, majority of economic activity was poured into the war effort. In fact, in Germany, 80% of all the food and clothing production was solely for the army. Trade unions used the labor shortage as an excuse to force wages upward, but when the war ended, the labor force increased enormously when the soldiers returned back to domestic life. And while normally this would have forced wages back down to a true level, uh, this was contrary, quote, to the policy of the trade unions, and governments found themselves obliged to resort to unemployment benefits to take care of those who had been thrown out of work. And that was the, at the beginning of the U unemployment benefit system. But the governments had no money, so they printed it. This devalued the money from what it was before and effectively ended up lowering wages. And, of course, here he goes on to explain why... Um, uh, basically, unemployment is not an essential part of what has been called a capitalistic economy. And that's something we'll get into next week, because I think we're running out of time here in the show. We're going to have to wrap it up shortly. But there's one thing I just wanted to say at the end. Uh, y- you know, uh, we always talk about John Maynard Keynes. And one of the th- very interesting comments made by Balve in, his o- in the same essay is about Keynes, where he reiterates the very comments made by Milton Friedman in a clip from Free to Choose that we played on a broadcast on this show. And on that show, Friedman lamented the fact that Keynes passed away before he could go public with his realization that his theories were incorrect, which he was actually planning to do. And uh, here is literally, uh, here's what Balve has to write on that very point. He says, um, you know, about the English economist John Maynard Keynes, he said, paradoxically, his theories attained their greatest popularity precisely at a time when, according to the reports of his intimate friends, Lord Keynes himself was beginning to recognize its falsity and when he was on the point of making a public declaration to that effect. In any case, he died without having done so, end quote. So there you have it. Who else is opposed to the Keynesian approach to the economy? Well, John Maynard Keynes himself. I'll certainly be talking more about that and other economic insights on future shows. We'll have to leave it there. I hope you'll join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. So until then, eh? Be right, stay right, do right, act right, and think right. We'll see you then.
1: Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. I hate smoky bars. I make a fool out of myself, especially when I'm drunk. I went to this uh, nightclub the other night with my buddies, and I saw this really beautiful woman staring at me from across the dance floor. And I figured she wanted me, so I told the bartender to send over a beer on me. Ten minutes later, she's still staring at me, so I finally walk over to say hi. Turns out she's a Miller-like cutout propped up against the wall. I go back to the bar, bartender's like, Hey, another drink for the lady, Mr. McGill? On the way home, my friend stops at every billboard. Hey, look, Jeff, she wants you too. Grab a ladder.